Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, how expensive will it be to get to net zero? Plus, are international PCR tests a new racket? And finally, is the American dream dead? First up, in our cover story this week, Ross Clark looks at the financial viability of one of the government's main proposals, getting to net zero. And it's fair to say he isn't convinced by the sums. He joins me now along with James Kirkup, who also writes in this week's magazine in defence of net zero and says that the costs involved are worth it. Ross, you write in this week's magazine about net zero and you make the argument that it isn't really worth the cost. Can you start by setting out your argument? Well, first, I mean, the background to this is... um the result of the Climate Change Act 2008, Britain had this um, legally binding target to reduce carbon emissions by 80% on 1990 levels by 2050. Then in the dying days of the Theresa May government in um, 2019, the government suddenly increased that to net zero, i.e. zero emissions by 2050, which might not sound a lot, just take this to 20 of remaining 20% of carbon emissions, but in fact it does have a huge implication because there are some industries which are just extremely very difficult to decarbonize. It's really a question of, now when that vote was held, I mean it wasn't a proper parliamentary bill, it was just a adjustment to the existing Climate Change Act, but in as much as it was debated at all in Parliament, I mean, it was debated on the basis of the estimate that the Committee on Climate Change had come up with the previous month in May 2019, suggesting it would cost £1.4 trillion of investment over the next 30 years to reach net zero. Now, how the Climate Change Committee had come up with this um, figure, nobody really knows because um, the Information Commissioner just ordered them last week to release all the spreadsheets. And the national grid themselves have come up with a, an estimate that would require three times as much investment as that. And that's just to try and decarbonize electricity and the electricity supply. But, you know, all these figures are really a nonsense because we have no idea really of how much it would cost to um, reach net zero emissions for the simple reason that a lot of the technology that would be required to get there hasn't been invented and if we take, sort of example, of the steel and cement industries, I mean, th- at the moment, they account for around 10% of um, global greenhouse gas emissions. But we, we have no idea how, how we, they could be decarbonised. I mean, the cement is not a question of energy. It, it's the cement making process, chemical reaction produce, releases carbon dioxide. Steel industry you know, it requires a reducing agent to produce steel. Um, at the moment, it's used by, we use coking coal, hence there's a large number of carbon emissions result from that. Now, theoretically, we might be able to use hydrogen. That's been experimented for the past 70 years without commercial success, it has to be said. 
But in even if that technology does become available, then there's still the question of how you produce the hydrogen, because um, you know most hydrogen at the moment is produced from fossil fuels, which um, completely um, defeats the object. It's not zero carbon. We we you know we might be able to produce it by electrolysis of water. Um, in a zero carbon way. But again, that is an industry which is sort of a developmental stage and, and we haven't got there to doing it at commercial level yet. James, you also write in this week's magazine, you write in defence of the net zero plans and make the point that the cost of decarbonisation will cost far less than the cost of doing nothing. Can you set out your argument? Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, and I think Ross makes an interesting point there when he, he goes back to the Committee on Climate Change costs for this entire project, because actually at the time the you know, the Parliament made that vote, the, the Committee on Climate Change estimate was that this was going to cost, give or take, uh, something like 2% of, you know, 2% of GDP annualised, I think, over the period. Even since that vote, that Cost estimate has fallen. We're now, according to the track, the Treasury's uh, the Treasury interim net zero review. The Treasury's estimating actually, when talking more like one percent long term. So uh, it's not quite the case that either long term cost has halved even in a few years. But the the, the arrows are pointing downwards. And I, I agree with Ross that the uh, the likely costs of this project will you know, the estimated costs put in at the moment are going to be wrong. But I think the costs are going to be you know, those estimates going to be wrong in that the, the sense of the, they're going to be too high. And if you sort of take a step back a little bit from this debate, you, you, you go wind back a little bit further, say 10 years, to the start of the, the coalition years, if we'd been having this conversation then, we would have been talking about onshore wind and windmills and wind power. And a lot of people then were making the argument that oh, wind power, will never be, it'll never be economic, it'll never work, it's untried technology, it's failing, it's terrible. And in the last 10 years, what's happened, the price of uh, yeah, renewable electricity generated from wind has collapsed. The market has worked its magic. Uh, industry has been given an incentive to do this stuff more cheaply, and it has done it more cheaply. New wind power uh, plant is now cheaper than new coal, you know, than new coal, new coal plant, you know, plant uh, installations. You know, the, you know, we now produce... Forty something percent of our electricity from from renewables. If if you'd been to, if if somebody hadn't made that forecast ten years ago, they would have been laughed at a town as being wildly optimistic. Turns out, actually, when you give the private sector the right direction, the right incentive from government, uh, yeah, this is a this is a part that you do need government to set the direction to you know, to give incentives, possibly through subsidy, or you know, you, you to essentially tell the market where the money is to be made. The market will come along and make money by innovating and, and solving these questions. I, 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 yeah, Ross is absolutely right. Put his finger on questions about you know, about concrete and steel. These are the, these are hard problems. I don't, I don't have the answer at the moment. I'm not sure anybody who anybody does. But you know, give people incentives, give industry incentives. That yeah, they will sooner or later solve them. And say so the same is true of electric cars. Ten years ago, electric cars were we were science fiction. Now, the best-selling car in the, in the UK in June was the Tesla. The same will be true of domestic heat, which is going to be the real. I mean, yeah, this is a tricky. These are these are the tricky bits of the net zero. Yeah, we're getting into the hard problems. How do we decarbonize home heat? How do we replace twenty four million gas boilers with heat pumps or hydrogen? At the moment, the the stuff on the market is a bit too expensive, unattractive, possibly not even as good as it should be. But given incentives to industry, it will generate. It will produce goods that are better, cheaper, more efficient, and yeah, that will solve these problems for us. 
Ross, what do you make of the argument that James makes that even in the worst case, the cost of net zero will be nothing compared to doing nothing? Um, well, no, I, I don't accept that at all. I mean, if you're talking about the other side of the, the ledger, the, the cost asserted by climate change, I think that the, the relevance of, um, you know, for, for Britain, the, the main issue is sea level rise. I mean, I don't, I don't accept this sort of, um, you know, idea that we're going to suffer more storms and more inland uh, you know, greater deluges. Uh, actually, the IPCC report states that the Northern Hemisphere is suffering fewer deep storms, you know, outside tropical latitudes. Um, so it's, as regards sea level rise, we, we need a lot of investment in sea defences just to protect against our existing climate. So I, I don't think that side of the ledger is so um, high as... Um, you know, a lot of uh, scare, scaremongering makes out. As regards the other side of the ledger, I mean, you know, we, we go back to wind and solar. I mean, James is right to say that the cost of generating wind and solar power has gone down. But I mean, the trouble is with wind and solar as intermittent forms of energy, you can't, can't just look at the cost of the solar panels and the wind turbines alone. You've got to look at the cost of storing the energy because you know, you can't always match demand with supply. And as yet, we still have no real economic means of storing vast quantities of electricity, which would be required for us to go to a sort of wind and solar based power system. As regards to the figure James quoted on renewables, I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding here, is that the, the, the single biggest a source of what, what the government call renewable energy in the electricity grid at the moment is um, biomass. It's basically burning wood pellets imported from North America. And, you know, by some, uh, you know, estimates, that's even filthier than coal. But it doesn't show up on the UK carbon budget because, you know, we only count territorial emissions. So if you cut down a tree in North America, it doesn't count on the government's sort of UK carbon budget. But I think generally, I think, you know, it's OK being very boosterish about this and saying, you know, the market will bring down costs. And on some things, it does bring down costs. The market works very well and state investment sometimes works very well, too. But it doesn't happen or you can't just assume that the market will invent technology. And if we were having this discussion 50 years ago, we would be talking about a nuclear fusion that was going to be the you know great hope that was going to give us virtually limitless virtually free energy and um you know within a few years half a century later we're still really nowhere near uh, nowhere nearer getting um nuclear fusion into the grid for the simple reason that neither the market nor indeed state back investment has found a way of producing the sustained high temperatures that would be required to run a nuclear fusion plant and, um, you know, call it a market failure, call it a um, failure of state investment. I mean, the technology just has defied us. It has not been able to um, develop in the, in the way that was assumed half a century ago. And, you know, that may be the way with steel, cement, energy storage, you know, we, we cannot assume that these technologies would just magically come into existence to meet this sort of arbitrary target of 2050. James, Ross, Ross makes the point also that millions of homeowners could face capital costs of around £20,000 to decarbonise their homes. 
Do you think that the cost could become a political problem for the Prime Minister? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, mean, on, on, I mean, on that, we agree. I think 20,000 is, is, is quite a problem on the high side. But undoubtedly, and this is the question of decarbonising home heat, to get to net zero, you have to eliminate the 15-something percent of UK carbon emissions that come from heating our, our homes and buildings. And this, I mean, this is the, one of the, real, the really tricky problems, because what do you replace your gas-burning boiler with? Top candidate is probably is probably one candidate is heat pumps, one is hydrogen, and Ross I think rightly identifies some some real issues around hydrogen. But let's say you you, know, you, you go for heat, you know, a combination, some hydrogen, some heat pumps, and district heating, as is used in uh, Scandinavia. They're all complicated. They're all expensive. But to, to to focus on 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 heat pumps at the moment, I mean the, the commonly accepted figure uh, you know, for how much will heat ground source heat pump cost me? It's in the region of ten thousand pounds. Yeah, that is too high. Um, you know, you can't possibly ask everyone in the country or mandate everyone in the country to go out and you know, replace their gas boiler with, with, with one of those. So what's going to have to happen? First of all, there's going to have to be some subsidy. There is already subsidy. It'll probably have to go up and be better targeted on people in uh, on low income, social housing providers and all the rest of it. That's one thing. Uh, second, I think there's going to have to be a switch of tariffs at the moment. Uh, we currently make... Uh, electricity consumption too expensive and gas consumption too cheap. I think ministers will switch the tariff away from electricity onto gas, as that will make electricity cheaper relative to gas. And then, I'm afraid, sorry, forgive forgive my, my, my boosterism, Ross, the industry, having been given a clear signal from government that it has the opportunity to sell anything up to a million of these things a year, will come charging in and try to make heat pumps cheaper and there is already well, at least one provider octopus energy which thinks that by you know, pretty soon it's going to be able to sell and install a heat pump for five thousand pounds half the current you know, the current average uh, now octopus is doing that because they think if they can sell this thing for five thousand pounds they'll sell a lot of them that will then mean that someone else is going to come along and think how, hang on a minute how do we undercut octopus how, how can we do this for four and a half thousand pounds someone else will then try and do it for four thousand pounds yeah, the incentive will be there for the private sector to supply this, these, these things more cheaply. Combine that with the right policy mix, and I think some of those scary-sounding numbers that Ross talks about become a lot, uh, yeah, become a lot less scary. You then yeah, uh, factor in the running costs over the lifetime of a heat pump versus a boiler, uh, and. It doesn't take. I think you know, uh, it's not boosterism. I think, and there are you know there are some good acad- uh, academic calculations done by Jan Rosenow at, at Oxford University to show that before long you get to the point where actually the lifetime cost of a, of that heat pump becomes lower than the lifetime cost of a gas boiler. So when your gas boiler packs up and requires re- requires replacing, as they all do sooner or later, it may well be the case that very soon the heat pump becomes a cheaper long term replacement option. And Ross, just finally, if not net zero, what do you think would be a kind of reasonable thing to aim for? Um, I think probably not having a legally binding target. I'd say you, net zero by 2050, I think that's a perfectly reasonable um, ambition, say aspiration, but it's the legally binding pro- part which is the problem. And one of the things we're going to face is that... Um, and as I made the point earlier, in, in counting UK carbon emissions, the, the government only uses territorial emissions and excludes aviation, it includes shipping, it excludes even more importantly carbon emissions spewed out elsewhere in the world in the name, the cause of producing food and other goods for UK consumers. 
No, you sort of work you through work it through logically, and you think UK is going to have this self-imposed legally binding target to achieve net zero by 2050. China, other many other countries are not going to be so foolish. What's going to happen is all our remaining heavy industry is going to drift off to China, um, food production too, probably. Uh, you know, in order to meet this focus target, and it's going to be pointless, you know, Britain achieving net zero, you know, given we, we currently account for 1% of carbon emissions and China accounts for 29%, you know, to do it, to have this legally binding self-imposed target just makes no sense unless you bring the rest of the world with you. And, uh, you know, I absolutely see no suggestion that the rest of the world is going to come with us on this. James, what do you make of that? Two points. Uh, so on the that economic trans economic transition point um there are some there's some good challenges there there are opportunities here as well i mean you, you, you there are you know, there is money to be made jobs to be created there are there is comparative advantage to be had for britain on the technology involved particularly the financing we haven't talked about green finance this could be a huge area of development and growth for uh yeah, for the uk and on the the the, the process point about the policy being set in law i mean I have to be. You know, I'm not a huge fan of this sort of declaratory legislation idea that, 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 that policy goals should be set in law. Become a sort of fad in the last 15 years. But I mean, just to come back to the, the, the boring, simple fact, it is the law. Parliament made the decision. Parliament set this target in law. Until Parliament changes its mind, which it can do at any point, this is the law. And I, you know, I, I'm a boring, you know, a, a boring believer in playing by the rules. This is the law. Let's follow the law. Let's you know, let us do what the law what the law says we says we must. Thank you, Ross and James. Next up, in this week's issue, Matt Quinton talks about his trip home from Malta and the odyssey he went through whilst trying to get a simple day two COVID test. It seems that startup companies are now trying to squeeze a quick buck out of unsuspecting travellers. He joins me now along with Virginia Messina, the acting CEO of the World Travel and Tourism Council. Matt, you begin your piece in this week's Spectator talking about a trip to Malta and the COVID testing that was then involved when you tried to get back. Can you start by telling us what exactly happened? Well, I mean, when I headed off to a green list country, my understanding would be that with the world being open for travel again, it would be relatively easy for us to make our way over to Malta and to make our way back again. And while Malta has open access for those who can prove that they're double jabbed, so that was a relatively straightforward process, I was really surprised by the fact that coming back we needed a test in Malta which was very very straightforward we got it done in you know just a few hours but my experience of trying to navigate the UK system for getting that test done on the way back really was something that I was not expecting from any kind of interaction with government so you're directed towards a website which is filled with prices for private companies heading onto their own site, those tests are never available at the price that the government says that they're going to be. Uh, and when they are available, they're at least double the price that is listed on that government website. And the whole experience of trying to navigate through it all is not hugely dissimilar to trying to book a budget airline flight, which is maybe the point given the, the, the travel connection. But you sort of find yourself constantly feeling like you're being shuffled towards a more expensive product. You're being told that something's going to be available and then something else is out of stock. And the whole thing uh, kind of really leaves a sour taste in the mouth at the end of a holiday. And I think it's no surprise that the government is sort of recognising that this is something that 
that they need to get a handle on and get on top of because it's an onerous cost on people who are looking to get away on holiday, which is something that a lot of us are looking to do now after last year. Virginia, you're the acting CEO of the World Travel and Tourism Council. How common are stories like Matt's? Yeah, so Matt brings up a, a really good point, which is uh, which has been one of the biggest challenges um, for industry, which is precisely the cost of these PCR tests. Because effectively, if you're looking at a family of four traveling, it really changes um, the, the, the economics of a trip. And, and for many in the mass market, potentially, it really restricts them from going abroad at all. So, well, I mean... We are at a point where the government has now put certain flexibility for fully vaccinated travelers, obviously considering where we are and how advanced the vaccination rollout is in this country, which is um, incredibly positive. However, unfortunately, the rules are still confusing. We're still seeing loads of changes in the traffic light system. It's still very difficult to get on top. And exactly the point that Matt is making is is the hassle that that travelers need to go through to even book a trip and then coming back, the expensive cost of, of these PCR tests, which we actually wonder whether they're still needed. So if, we ha- if we're talking about a population that is mostly inoculated, do we still need to be testing everyone with a PCR test or could we just rely on a rapid or antigen test? Matt, in your piece, you say you spent a bit of time looking at some of these websites, some of which seem a bit, not exactly shady, but a little bit dubious with their use of language and imagery. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Right, absolutely. I take Virginia's point completely that, um, you know, this is an area where the government has decided to take action. Actually, there's two separate inquiries going on to this area at, at the moment. The Advertising Standards Agency are investing in the inconsistent pricing and Sajid Javid is has asked the Competition to Markets Authority to investigate as well. But I think that what I would strike most of our listeners when they're looking at these websites is not so much the, the price that we end up paying, which is Virginia said, it can be very considerable when you're talking about it for a whole family, but the experience of using these websites in general. I mean, I have been working as a, a journalist for a number of years, and I have to say my skills have really been pushed to the limit to navigate my way through these in a way that avoids paying a huge amount of cost. But in, in addition, I think you very much get the impression that these are websites that look like they've been set up by somebody overnight in, in, in many cases, and all by organizations that don't necessarily have a huge pedigree in testing. So the website that I ended up booking through was a, uh, a company that is wholly owned by a design company. Uh, and who uh, say that the aim of their organizational company's house is to uh, provide retail clothes, specialized retail clothes. Um, Another website that I came across in the course of going through this was one that was set up by a company who used to be a uh, travel firm and whose sole director describes himself online as a travel agent. Now, I don't know how difficult it is to carry out a medical testing operation, but I would imagine that to have organisations like these uh, to be the people running the website is not something that would fill a huge amount of people with confidence in the results. And indeed, while I don't know, I can't speak to these companies in particular, there have been huge concerns raised about people tests not coming back or test kits not indeed not arriving. So I know that has been an issue that's been flagged. Virginia, one of the quotes that Matt makes in his piece is that, and I'm quoting here, the government does not recommend any particular test provider and that holidaymakers should do their own research. For example, read reviews about available providers. Does that seem a bit unfair to you that the government is now putting the onus on the individual when really they should be the ones regulating these companies? 
fine. Although ultimately, I mean, they're not recommending them, but they're somehow certifying them to get to that list because there is a process in theory through which these providers need to go through to actually get on that list. And actually, if I if we backtrack, say, 12 to even 18 months ago, when all of this started and when they put this system in place, we, we only had about 20 to 30 maybe of these providers, obviously, that the supply wasn't there and, and these tests were even more expensive at the time. But it took some time for the government to come up with the guidelines of who potentially would become a provider. And, and this list has increased. We have more than a thousand listed providers on that website. So whilst they're not recommending a particular one, certainly they're vetting it or there is a process by which these um, companies get there. Now, the cost has certainly been been a concern. I don't think the government has had the ability to look at the whole process, to really look at all the sorts of things that Matt has been talking about. The experience is, is, is really difficult. I think we've all unfortunately had to go through it for one reason or the other. And actually, one of the things I also found at some point when we were trying to book tests back in um, sort of early July, if for any reason you were traveling during the summer, that obviously the cost of the test was quite high. But then um, if you could book your test say for day two or day eight from September onwards that same test was or and that same service was more expensive with the same provider so that really leads you to think there's something going on I, I, I know um, the government has put a system in place because we've been in conversations with um, DFT about it but I don't think I mean it's obviously not there yet and it's good that this is increasing to the level that now MPs and others are asking the watchdog to basically look into it. And Matt, the next time you travel, what would you do differently? Well, I, I think it is fair to say from a consumer perspective that if you look further down the road, as Virginia is saying, often if you leave it until closer to the time, then the deals, not that they're particularly good, but become even more uh, exploitative in such David's words. So certainly looking further down the road and trying to book tests in advance is something that can be an advantage. I think more likely by the next time I go abroad, I will just hope that of all of the investigations that the government has launched into these, one of them managed to reduce the cost to a more manageable uh, and affordable level, or that the market has resolved itself uh, in such a way that uh, it doesn't end up taking up such a chunk of my holiday budget. And finally, Virginia, do you think there should just be a fixed rate for these tests? So actually what we have suggested, because so the reason why the government wants PCR tests done is because they're able to use the data. So these tests, as we know, are lab handled and therefore they can use them for genomic sequencing, which they cannot do with a rapid test. Presumably this is part of the government strategy to obviously identify these variants or where the variants are coming in or, or, or prevent them from coming in, which is good. But I think that the, what is clear now is that if you are fully vaccinated, you just need that additional, it could just be a rapid test. So what we've been arguing is whether it should be the government paying for them, because ultimately, I mean, they're using this as a, as a government-led strategy to try to potentially, I mean, obviously tackle the, the pandemic and therefore, why does this need to be at an increased cost for the consumer if a rapid test would work similarly? And actually, I think part of the protocol is that if you get a rapid either lamp test or antigen test or a positive result, then you have to do a PCR anyway. Matt and Virginia, thank you very much. And finally, for most of the 20th century, America was the shining city on a hill that many Europeans who wanted to start a new life headed for. But is that still the case? 
not according to Sean Thomas, who in this week's issue claims that the American dream is well and truly over. He joins me now alongside our deputy editor and the host of our podcast, Americano, Freddie Gray, who will hopefully give us a glimmer of hope that the USA isn't in terminal decline. Sean, your piece this week asks why any European would want to move to America now. And, and you begin by talking about the late chef, Anthony Bourdain, eating a dish called Cincinnati chili. Why did you start with this as a metaphor? Um, because I think it does epitomise how life in many aspects appears European in, in America, but is actually actually somewhat inferior. And Anthony Bourdain, it, it was a great American patriot. He was on the left. Uh, he was a passionate New Yorker, but he's also very proudly American. But he does eat this dish. And you can see in his face, he's thinking, oh, my God, you would never serve this in Europe. And any European would be like, please, no, take it away. I mean, chocolate and cinnamon in chilli with chilli, it just doesn't work. And I've thought about that for, for months, if not years afterwards. And I've, and I've been to America a few times since seeing it. And I've thought, my God, yes, America isn't what it was for a European. It's no longer a place we'd like to go to, not just because of the food, but because of the health service and many other things. Freddie, you are a European who's lived in America and you also are the host of our popular series Americano. Do you agree with this bleak view of America that Sean sets out in his piece? Well, uh, first of all, let's, let me say I like the piece very much and, and I'm glad we published it. But I am slightly nervous uh, because we're going to publish it on our American website and Americans don't take kindly to kind of limeys telling them that their country's crap. So we may have a few cancelled subscription, but I also think at the same time, I think... Americans will agree with a lot of what Sean is saying. If you if you talk to Americans, they're quite unhappy about their culture and the kind of go-lucky, positive attitude that we associated with America right up until the 80s and 90s is very much dead. And so I think it will speak to Americans. I'm just worried they won't appreciate us saying it. <laughs> Sean, you talk about how Europeans used to admire America, but you seem to think this has changed. When did you think that started to change? Uh, I- Quite recently, I'd say. Uh, I think America was still the, the, the shining city on the hill until about maybe, you know, 9-11. I don't know, around about then, something seemed to happen. Then there was the Iraq war. American politics went to, into a, a terrible spiral of decline, as perhaps it did in Europe as well. And now in the last few years, we've got these, this vicious identity politics taking over in, in American academe and, in, and generally. And also just... Uh, a sense that America's lost its way. I mean, recently, you know, the, the, uh, the Capitol insurrection. I mean, that was unthinkable 10 years ago that could happen in America. But we watched it on our TVs. There was nearly a coup. You know, and you cannot look, look at that and think that America is in a great place. We're talking here about America as one sort of great mass and Europe too, but Fred, presumably there are bits of America you would like to live in and bits you wouldn't, in the same way that there are bits of Europe you'd want to live in and, and bits you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, of course, as Sean acknowledges, it's a huge, sprawling place and it's hard to make generalisations. But, I mean, apart from the sort of political problems, there are sort of infrastructure things, you know, the roads in lots of places aren't very good. There's problems with the water in many parts of the country. It's starting to feel like it's reversing as a developed country. I do think one point I'd like to pick up on, Sean, is about, is about sort of the capitalism and the fact that, you know, in our social democratic countries, we all enjoy better roads, better government services, and that America will sort of inevitably gravitate towards that. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but as far as I understand, a lot of the growth that we enjoy, the economic growth that we enjoy in Europe comes from the fact there is this enormous capitalist machine or system in America that is it's cruel and it's brutal uh, and it's very hard on poor Americans, but it also generates enormous amounts of wealth that the, the rest of the world 
benefits from, enormous amounts of wealth and innovation. So I think we kind of need America. We need the American capitalist system to enjoy the society that we live in. Sean, do you think that's right? Uh, Yes. I just want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, This thing about American infrastructure, there's a famous description of America, and it's quite old, that America is an extremely rich third world country. And I think that's very true. It's often had, you know, crumbling, you know, it's it's a huge country and uh, lots of things fall down all the time. And it takes a lot of rebuilding and and it's never going to be as orderly as Europe, which has been rich, richer for so much longer. Do you think the Brits are particularly snooty about Americans? Uh, I, I think some Brits are, but in generally the Brits have, have looked up to America. You know, we, we, we love American culture. We love, we love American fast food. American TV, American movies. We've always revered them almost. So it is, a, it is a, quite a sea change that now people are looking much more sceptically at the USA. I think that's right. I think what's interesting is that sort of, if you want elite or um, upper class, higher status American opinion has always been to look slightly jealously at Europe. I think there was like a credit card ad that said something like, there's nothing that says I got it in Europe like getting it in Europe or something like that. So it's it's always been this sort of, this idea that European society is older and more sophisticated and all that sort of stuff. But I think where America is at its most confident is when it believes in itself and its own culture. And I think, you know, Trumpism had a lot of problems, obviously. But I think within Trumpism, maybe you could call it a nasty nationalism, but I think there was also a sort of attempt to return to believing in that America itself can be good and that can do good things and that we that America doesn't have to sort of invade countries unnecessarily to be a good force in the world. Just finally, Sean, do you think that the era of Biden is going to convince more Europeans that America is a, is a better place or do you think it's, it's pretty damned? Uh, I'm not sure about Biden, but I don't think America is damned, no. I think that it's, it, if it is anything, it's a place of innovation and renewal. It's, it's had, it has an amazing capacity to come back. It went through a terrible civil war you know, 150 years ago. It's been through two, two other huge world wars and won them. America will, does c- contain the capacity to come back and be the great country it was. But it is probably in the worst place it's been now for many decades. I'd agree with that. I think I think self-hatred is almost posing an existential threat to America. Joe Biden has just passed this huge infrastructure bill, which might address some of the problems we're talking about. But there's a wider sense that America's giving up on itself and doesn't really believe in, in what it stands for. And the reason why America's always been able to regenerate and live through its endless crises is because of its constitution, which I think is is cleverly framed so that states still have power, there's local authority can control policy and that enables freedom and it enables regeneration so i hope because i'm an americanophile that america does come back freddie and sean thank you for coming on and that's everything for the edition this week if you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on please do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive and of course please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on i'm Laura prendergast and i hope you have a lovely weekend